Hello everybody and welcome to this Kane and Rinse end of year special roundup. Don't really know exactly what to call it and I don't exactly know what everyone's going to be contributing because I haven't heard it yet. Uh, we don't do sort of games of the year in the traditional fashion because firstly um, most of the games would be too new for us to really consider. It would sort of go against what Kane and Rinse is about. Similarly, another thing that kind of goes against our manifesto, such as it is, uh, is that we try not to rank things against one another. We try not to do this is the, be the best of that. This is the best of this. We try not to compare completely different games against one another. We try to we try really hard to just talk about them in the context of the experience that they gave us. Obviously, sometimes there are uh, comparisons to be made with sequels and other games in the genre and that sort of thing and we don't shy away from that but it's more like you know this game is number one in this genre this game is number two by this developer that sort of thing because it's all nonsense completely open for debate totally subjective and so on and so forth so hopefully this will just be a little uh, summation of the individual members of or some of the Kane and Rinse team uh, and their 2015, whether it be games that they've played during the year, some of them will be games that were released in 2015, and some of them might not be. But uh, listen on, and uh, I hope you enjoy. definitely in fact the most regular host of Kane and Rinse is not necessarily what you'd expect of a kind of enthusiast whatever you want to call it hardcore gamer somebody who tends to buy uh, a lot of the big new titles uh, unlike many people I don't just play them straight away as much as I want to there are many games I've bought this year with the uh, very good but probably naive intention of actually playing at the time of their release so games that i've barely or not even touched at all but that i own include the likes of batman arkham knight metal gear solid 5 monster hunter 4 ultimate the witcher 3 fallout 4 it's like a set of uh, football scores uh pro evolution soccer 2016 uh splatoon as well xenoblade chronicles x um, majora's mask 3d which i got uh pre-installed on a gorgeous uh new 3ds which i love uh, Her Story, Ori and the Blind Forest, all these games were bought. Um, a couple, you know, a few of them I've had a little dabble with, um, and some of them, most of them just sit there either uninstalled or having just seen the very, very start. And I, I think everyone will know what this is like, regardless of whether they try to complete games hand over fist for a podcast, is that delicious, that gorgeous feeling of sort of mixed with a slight bittersweet tinge of knowing that those games are there waiting to be played and ready and that's really exciting if you own them already you don't even need to pay for them there's the whole oh now I've seen that I bought that game when it came out and now I've seen it for like a tenth of the price there's that slight ache but it's also lovely having that library of delicious 
tantalising morsels uh, waiting to be played, thinking of all the good times I'm going to have immersed in those amazing worlds. And those are some really massive games I've got to play. But yes, naive in the sense that when am I going to find time to play them? Uh, the reason, one of the main reasons I uh, decided upon the format of the Cane and Rinse podcast, along with Jay and uh, Tony, I wanted to make a show that I thought people would find interesting. And it is something, as I say, it wasn't entirely original, the idea of a video games podcast that talked about one game at a time or a series of games. Uh, but I think, to my knowledge, we're the only ones who have managed somehow to keep it up for any length of time because it is it is demanding on your time. It does mean playing sometimes things that you don't particularly want to be playing. But we do like to stick to our schedule. We, we try not to have delays to the release of the of the show. And we do try to stick as far as is absolutely possible to our commitment to complete games before we talk about them. So my year started with a lot of Silent Hill games. Uh, we were only up to Silent Hill 3 at the start of the year. So I'd already played, you know, kind of the first two, which uh, many regard as, as the kind of classics of, the, of, the, of that series. So I ended up having to, you know, having to. That sounds awful. My decision. But... Uh, I, I was committed to play Silent Hill 3 all the way up to Downpour uh, and Homecoming. And that was, you know, it was a really mixed experience. You can hear the results of those podcasts, of course. Similarly, later in the year, we uh, we covered all the Halo games that we hadn't covered before. So that meant uh, playing through most of the Master Chief collection. Um, and again, hardly a hardship, but also, you know, that's not it's not inconsiderable in terms of the amount of time it takes to play through those games. Some of the other games we covered this year, I would sort of separate out into. Obviously, again, please listen to the podcast from uh, Volume 4 um, that relate to these games. Uh, my favourites, and these are two of my favourite games of the year that I played in 2015. Obviously, they are actually they date back much further. Chrono Trigger on the DS, which uh, dates back to something like 2008. But obviously, the original Super Nintendo game was uh, 20 years ago now I think 1995 absolutely loved it brilliant to finally finish it uh, although I'd played large chunks of it before um, a really tremendous RPG really still magical and atmospheric for me similarly Dragon's Dogma a much more recent game and uh, soon excitingly to be coming to PC which is something that we uh, we vocally hoped for on the show then there were the games played for the podcast that basically I enjoyed while playing but left me with no sort of long lasting impression or, or affection it, the likes of Sleeping Dogs and Assassin's Creed 3 then there, there are a bunch of games which I would put in the flawed but interesting category broadly that's incredibly broad obviously we talk about these games for two hours at a time on the podcast but Killer 7 another great one to have finally completed um, but with all sorts of gameplay issues uh, from my point of view Valiant Hearts another interesting title uh, Transistor and uh, an odd world, new and tasty as well, which uh, which I enjoyed much of, gave me a few problems as well. And then, latterly, there were a couple of games that I played for the podcast that uh, I couldn't honestly say I enjoyed wildly, although they were interesting in their own way. Uh, that would be Comic Zone, the Mega Drive game, and yes, I'm afraid to say the first, The Legend of Zelda. And obviously, that is what's going to inform my next year's worth of playing. So I still have this enormous backlog, not only of games from 2015, but going all the way back many many years uh, and now we have our Zelda series coming up and this is something that I really really want to do I'm massively looking forward to it uh, but it will mean playing uh, one Zelda game per month for the next year and a half which is going to be amazing um, I'm really looking forward to it I don't expect I'll get burned out I think there's enough variance between the various titles there's the sort of slightly different ones slightly at odds 
but yes, I am currently, my current game is Zelda 2 The Adventure of Link, and I will make no secret the fact that I'm really struggling um, to make progress in it. It's tough. I'm finding it difficult even with save scumming and a walkthrough, so uh, it'll be interesting to see. I will get it done before the podcast records in the new year, but um, I think that's going to be an interesting show with a lot of opinions, uh, a broad spread. Other 2015 games I've played, well, the one I played the most undoubtedly is Bloodborne. Um, but I haven't quite completed it. I still haven't quite completed it. I'm right. I'm really quite near the end now. I know, and I've even dabbled in the uh, the Old Hunters DLC. Uh, really enjoyed this game a lot. Um, it, if you know, if we did do kind of this is my game of 2015, this would probably be the one that I've enjoyed the most that was released during this year. Um, I also played Rise of the Tomb Raider, kindly lent to me by our own Darren. Um, I enjoyed it, but it didn't leave me with any great, extraordinary kind of buzz about it. Uh, I don't think it was as exciting personally as the the first uh, kind of reboot game from 2013. Even though uh, I think that you know they did attempt to kind of enhance certain elements that were perhaps lacking in in that 2013 game. Uh, such as having more actual tombs and puzzles. And there were some cool puzzles in there, I think. Um, but overall, I was left kind of feeling that I'd played similar games to this a lot now with this similar kind of <laughs> pre-scripted platforming and parkour and um, an open world co- collecting of, of debris and items. And I very I get sucked into that and I like being in this very pretty game world. But ultimately, um, you know, I, I'm really glad that Darren lent it to me and, and that I played it but I don't think you know it's it, it wasn't a kind of classic for me um, I've played a fair chunk of FIFA 16 of course because I always do I'm very much enjoying it uh, I played a fair amount of Super Mario Maker as well and that is a game that uh, sort of fascinates me um, but it's not something I play intensely but dropping in and out playing recommended levels is uh, is a treat uh, it can be a treat but it is very much about uh, the levels that you know to look for because the game still doesn't necessarily do a great job of pointing you in the direction of the most uh, interesting levels shall we say uh, I started very much enjoying Uncharted yes it's a, a, a re-release the Nathan Drake collection lovely work from Blue Point really attractive uh, slick remakes um, but I got completely teed off by the fact that I got about six hours into the first one was was enjoying it all over again as I did a few years ago when I first played it um, but then my save game corrupted and apparently this is a known issue so I haven't been back to it since then I'm hoping that they've patched out these problems um, but until they have I can't honestly recommend that package as, as wonderful as it is in every other respect because it's it, it's just I cannot afford and I'm sure many of you can't either to have my time wasted like that uh, it's a real problem that that bugs in there but hopefully I'm talking about something that has been since repaired uh, speaking of beautiful remakes three of my favorite releases of this year are undoubtedly the 3d uh, three of the 3d series on the 3ds by m2 for Sega m2 are this amazing uh, Japanese team who do these incredibly loving and detail-focused conversions of uh, older games, in this case uh, two Mega Drive or Genesis games and one classic coin-op outrun. So yes, Streets of Rage 2, Outrun and Gunstar Heroes, not just because they are old favourite games, but because of these versions are so 
spectacularly spot on, better than perfect in some ways because they take everything that was in the originals and, and kind of layer things upon them um, for the price that they charge under a five, a five pounds, under a five pounds, a few dollars anyway. I can't recommend these highly enough to anyone who uh, has a hankering for uh, something, you know, something classic, a vintage era. Uh, also played a good chunk of uh, Yoshi's Woolly World, which my girlfriend got for me, got for my birthday, which is uh, typically adorable and uh, does get quite challenging as it goes on, as cutesy as it is in that Nintendo way. And also, I can't obviously, I can't not recommend Rare Replay, especially now. I mean, it was it was ludicrous when I thought it was thirty quid. It came out at twenty quid, which is absurd, and now you can get it for a sort of ten, twelve pounds, which is just ridiculous um, even if you don't touch the old spectrum stuff which i recommend that anyone who likes cane and rinse probably would want to do because um, it is uh, vintage stuff some of it i think people are finding pretty much unplayable and i do understand that um, but it's fascinating nonetheless games that i uh, still haven't bought from this year even you know to add to those that uh, I bought but haven't touched. There's still things like Halo 5, which I'd like to experience, the the new Mario & Luigi uh, RPG, uh, Paper Jam, there's Undertale, which I've heard so many good things about, Nuclear Throne and Chaos Reborn finally properly released, uh, Downwell's meant to be a lot of fun, I know it's only a quid, I sort of bought it, SteamWorld Heist looked right up my street, uh, Soma sounds like scary fun, Fast Racing Neo looks cool, Life is Strange, a, a lot of people have said interesting things about that. Everybody's Gone to the Rapture looks, again, something like something I'd enjoy. Uh, and then there's Darius Burson's Steel Empire, two very recent releases. Um, vintage style shoot 'em ups, which again, you know, suit me very well. Um, but yeah, so it's been, you know, the usual uh, varied mix. Um, a lot of the time I feel kind of out of the loop because I'm playing, yeah, like uh, Sun Hill Homecoming when everyone else is playing The Witcher 3 or whatever. Um, and that, you know, sometimes that is frustrating, but absolutely this is not a complaint because I love I love making cane and rinse. I love playing the games for it. Um, and as I say, once I get over this undoubted uh, hump that is Zelda 2, I've got a year and a half of playing through all the main Zelda games again, and I can't think of many things I'd rather do in life, so that's pretty amazing. Um, but it will mean that, yeah, some of these games are going to get even older and <laughs> cheaper before I actually get round to playing them, probably, so... What can you do? Well, what, what you can do is uh, all pay into our Patreon, Cane Rinse, uh, Cane, Rinse, Cane Rinse Patreon, because if everyone did that, then uh, I could do this full time and play even more games <laughs> and, uh, and make even more podcasts. But uh, no, I did want to genuinely want to thank everyone who uh, listens to the podcast, particularly those who subscribe to both Cane Rinse and Sound of Play podcasts, with a special mention for those who have already donated to uh, to our patreon become patrons um and contributed to our ongoing existence which is just wonderful um and thanks for listening again through another year um we have another year already planned for you um i also just want to take this end of year opportunity to thank the crew um the editors the podcast editors who put in hours every week to make sure the show comes in at under two hours has music on it and doesn't sound terrible and things like that um chops out the waffle and the hyperbole and all that sort of thing that's um an invaluable an invaluable job uh, which i don't know how to do basically so without them uh, this podcast would just be an idea in my head um jay similarly uh, jay taylor without him all this would just be an idea in my head 
uh, there'd be no website, there'd be no iTunes feed, uh, there'd be no anything. There'd be no cane rinse, basically. Um, it would just be something that I'd think that would be a nice idea. Uh, he makes sure that everything is manifested physically, or digitally at least. Um, so utterly, um, yeah, uh, I think Carl said recently he's in some ways the sort of unsung hero, and I'd, I'd say that's true. Um, but also to thank everyone who's contributed to the blog, both members of the team and, and people who are kind of extended Kana Rince family, uh, and um, mainly Darren Gargett for making the Kana Rince uh, Quick Rince videos, uh, which are a lot of fun. You can check them out on our YouTube channel. Um, they only get minuscule amounts of views compared to the podcast gets downloads, but that seems a bit crazy to me because if you enjoy what we do on the podcast, and I'm sure you enjoy listening to Darren because he's just so damn lovable, um, check out his videos on our, on our YouTube channel. It, it just makes sense to me. Um, and yeah, similarly, we, you know, we have this blog uh, which has reviews and features and articles. It's a bit sporadic because it's, you know, it's all voluntary, it's all amateur, I can't crack the whip. Um, I certainly don't get as much time to write myself, what with preparing and uh, hosting uh, as many podcasts as I do and getting the games played and all that. But, um, but we have some great con contributors, contributors, if I can say that, um, and we're expanding that out this year. There will be more, there will be uh, new new people, new faces. And similarly, we're going to be expanding uh, the, the people we have on the podcast panel. You'll hear some new accents and, and some new voices uh, throughout 2016. So that's something to look forward to. Two thousand fifteen, um, one of the strongest years in recent memory for me, um, at least since two thousand ten, which I thought was another great year. Yeah, so great in fact that I've been frankly overwhelmed by the amount of great games released this year. Um, there's been there have been so many games um, that I know I'd probably like or love that I just haven't gotten round to, like Soma. And uh, I, I haven't finished Ori in the Blind Forest or Axiom Verge or or games like that, and it's and it's a shame. But then I've I've spent so much time with big games this year, like MGS Five and and uh, Monster Hunter Four. Uh, a lot of big games came out this year, and th those are the games that I ended up gravitating towards, for better or worse. I don't really regret it. I, I had a lot of, uh, of fun with these big, big titles, but I, I, you know, part of me feels a bit uh, bad for ignoring so many smaller, smaller, you know, five-hour, eight-hour experiences. But I, I really look forward to catching up with those titles next year. Uh, during the quieter months, um, I can't imagine 2016 is going to be as cram-packed with uh, great experiences as uh, 2015 has been for me. Um, but, you know, Kane and Rince isn't a podcast about the latest and greatest, and um, I wanted to talk about games that I managed to get around to this year but you know didn't necessarily weren't necessarily released this year
So first of all, I want to talk about uh, Majora's Mask, which I suppose could, you know might count as a 2015 release because of the 3DS re-release. That was the version I played, but you know, it's it's an old game. It's you know, it's a re-release of a N64 game, so I I hardly consider it a uh, a. A 2015 release, although uh, without that re-release, I probably wouldn't be talking about it now. Um, I I loved it. I I think it's uh, probably my favourite Zelda game. I I say that now, but the moment I see footage for Wind Waker or Skyward Sword or Twilight Princess, I go, no, actually, that's my favourite Zelda because honestly, I hold you know. A lot of those uh, those games in such high regard that they flit. Uh, which one's my favourite is constantly shifting and changing. But at the moment, as as I'm recording this, I'm confident in saying that Majora's Mask is my favourite of the Zelda experiences. Um, just I I think that game is so thematically rich in a way that not that other Zelda games aren't thematically rich, but it kind of explores territory that the other games don't really feel confident exploring. Wind Waker is, you know, there's lots of themes going on in there, but Wind Waker is very happy and and full of enthusiasm and it's just a very joyous experience whereas Majora's Mask is haunting and melancholic and um, just the way it talks about death in a really frank and honest way and, and the way it uses the moon to illustrate kind of, you know, time running out and how you only have so much time with the people that you love and, and so much time to do what needs to be done and just, you know, death is just around the corner. And the atmosphere of the game is so rich and never I, I've never felt the apocalypse uh, in in the same way that this game kind of conveyed it. Um, a lot of games, you know, threaten you, the player, with the end of the world. It never often feels like the world is actually ending, but on that last day of Majora's Mask, um, it really does feel like the world is coming into the, to an end, and it does, there's, there's a haunting beauty to it that I found really affecting. And, um, yeah, I, I ended up, I ended up really loving this game, and, and it, it definitely ended up being a highlight of my year. Um, another older title um, that I played this year was uh, Phoenix Wright. Inspired by the, uh, inspired to play this because I really, really love Ghost Trick. I think Ghost Trick is a modern masterpiece. I just adore that game. Um, Phoenix Wright isn't quite up there with that game, but it is still really great. Um, just the humour and the personality of all the characters. I mean, the lot. You know, I I often feel bad for criticising certain TV shows and games for poor logic and poor realism and then giving something like, you know, Phoenix Wright a free pass just because it's so 
colourful and cartoony, but I, I don't know. I don't mind that Phoenix Wright lives in a dystopian society where people are only allowed to have trials that last three days, and no matter what happens, you're automatically judged guilty. Like, yeah, that is a dystopian uh, society, if ever I've heard of one, but for whatever reason, it works, and I don't question it in in the world that Phoenix Wright creates. And I was surprised how kind of emotionally invested I got, especially in uh, in Edgeworth, uh, Edgeworth's uh, story towards the end. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the fact that it suddenly, uh, the, uh, the DS version at least, suddenly decides to tack on another case uh, on the end of the game where it feels like it should just naturally end. But to be honest, after a while, once I got past my annoyance in the kind of weird anticlimactic turn, I actually really enjoyed that case just as much as the last case. It was a really good case. Um, yeah, and I just, yeah, Phoenix Wright is great. Uh, I think it was great to have something like that in amongst all the heavy, challenging RPGs of uh, 2015. Something to break up uh, the likes of The Witcher 3 and Bloodborne, which I'm going to move on to now. So yeah, now I've you know I've, I'm done with the the games that I got to in 2015. Now it's time to talk about my favourite releases of 2015. Um, first of all, Bloodborne. I yeah, it's it's a masterpiece. Um, I, I prefer Dark Souls to Bloodborne, but in a lot of ways I think that's because I experienced Dark Souls first because. Bloodborne still gets so much right in terms of the lore and the way mechanics tie into the lore and all of that stuff. I I think uh, from a combat perspective, Bloodborne is is probably superior. I I love the fast-paced combat and the trick weapons, the way that they can transform. And it does end up feeling more like a Devil May Cry or a Bayonetta-style game with RPG mechanics because of that. And I love the bait-and-switch narrative. Um, I'm not going to talk about it in in case anyone's not experienced um, experienced Bloodborne, but let's just say you think one thing is the main threat, but actually it's something else entirely. Yeah, and I just found it to be the most mechanically sound game uh, I played this year. It's just really polished from a just a, from a pure gameplay uh, perspective. The combat's great and, and all of that stuff. Um, yeah, and, and the DLC has been fantastic so far. I haven't finished it, but um, yeah, it's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, and the my other favourite release of uh, 2015 was The Witcher 3. 
which has some of the best writing in uh, any video game I've ever played. Like, re like really right up there with The Last of Us or um, uh, Telltale's Walking Dead um, and, and the best of Mass Effect and Bioware stuff. Uh, I, I honestly, I think The Witcher 3 actually gives Bioware a, a, a run for their money. I think CD Projekt Red are doing things with uh, games writing in the RPG sphere that um, I think uh, the likes of Bethesda and Bioware are going to be trying to emulate in the years uh, following because it has a novelistic density that you really don't see in games at all to be honest just the way that all the characters matter and tie together the way the quests tie together in interesting and unexpected ways it's just for a game so long and and, and filled with content it's so economical like it just it doesn't waste anything there's no fat in that game all the side missions are worth experiencing there's not one where i thought well this is just busy work they all have a story that's compelling at the very least um yeah i just i i was bowled over by the characterization and storytelling in the witcher 3 and the DLC, if anything, is even better in that department. I, I think Hearts of Stone tells a great little intimate story that is almost entirely character-driven. And it's uh, the, that story, the Hearts of Stone story, is easily my favourite story of any game uh, released this year. I, I just thought it was fantastic. And for Gauntro Dim, a DLC character, to emerge as my favorite character from a game that was filled with great characters i think speaks volumes to the quality of that dlc so yeah um that's kind of my my 2015 there were loads of other games i could have mentioned like um tales of the borderlands which i i, I only just recently played which i think is a return to form for uh, telltale um, MGS5, which I think is simultaneously the best and worst Metal Gear Solid game at the same time. Um, Monster Hunter 4, which is just multiplayer at its best. Um, yeah, there were loads of great games, and I'm really looking forward to diving into the likes of Axiom Verge and Soma at some point. Okay, I'll pass you on to the next uh, panellist. strange year for me. I, I absolutely recognise the um, incredibly high standard and, and high volume of games, uh, that standard, that have been coming out this year. Um, but I, I just haven't got around to playing all that much, um, to be honest. Not entirely sure why. Other things distracted me, a um, bit of illness, etc. But um, three games in particular stand out head and shoulders above anything else that I played this year. Two of them I'm going to talk about briefly, and uh, it should be fairly obvious that I enjoyed these because the amount of time I spent on them for anyone who's 
who's kept up with me on Twitter or anything. Um, and then the last one I want to talk about uh, a, a bit longer, but we'll, we'll get straight into Metal Gear Solid 5. As a stealth fan, to have what I think is the most mechanically strong and robust Metal Gear Solid game um, come out this year, it just it was a no-brainer for me to just plow um, a solid month. I think I played Metal Gear Solid Five and nothing else. Um, I loved exploring um, kind of the the open world that had been created um, and and finding how areas that had seemed separate before were dynamically linked together in some later missions and um, that was really cool to see how the, they could change your perception of the area just by different enemy placement and um, coming in from a different angle you know approaching um, the same little fortress from a different side it actually took me a, a while to work out that it was somewhere I'd been before which is something that I really appreciate in all three of the, the games I'm going to talk about but in Metal Gear Solid 5 uh, it was just done really nicely in a way that um, I've, I've not seen in many games before. Obviously later levels having to repeat in chapter 2 some of the missions from, from chapter 1 that was disappointing but the added game modes I think increased the challenge to the point where I was perfectly happy to just dive into the mechanics of playing a stealth game and not really worry about what it meant for the story or or whether it reflected on um, uh, cutting of budget and resources for um, for the development team um, you know stuff like perfect stealth missions I'd kind of been doing that before but to have that stipulation placed upon you it does change the the nuance of how you how you go about approaching a, a given level um, yeah, so I just really enjoyed stealth in a, in a, what I felt was a fairly well-designed um, open world, um, and it's something that the Metal Gear Solid series hasn't offered me before, um, and, and I really appreciated that. It's right up there. It's one of my favourite Metal Gear Solid games and one of my favourite stealth games, so um, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Second that I want to just talk about briefly is uh, Bloodborne. Anyone who who knows me and, and has listened to our podcast will know fine well that I'm a massive proponent and fan of the, the Souls games. Um, and this was a Souls game just faster. It felt in every way just more immediate somehow. Um, the, the mechanics were stripped down, um, but there were some tweaks there to the health system and to you know adding regain, stuff like that, um, to force you into combat, whereas previously uh, it would have been more an encouragement to, to sit back behind a shield, etc., um, and with the bosses as well, you know, there was a, an, a ferocity to especially the beast bosses that just, um, it felt like they, they were closer to you. The camera position obviously affected that, but um, they felt bigger and larger and more um, overwhelming than I'd, I'd felt since probably I played Dark Souls for the first time, um, just due to their speeds of movement and uh, how quickly they could turn the tables on you. That was really exciting. Um, but the thing that the Bloodborne did for me that is kind of a running theme through through uh, certainly this and the next game I want to talk about is create an atmosphere um, through environmental design um, and and the way that they tell the story through that. But they created such an atmosphere in this game. Um, it looked just like a fairly straightforward werewolf-style horror uh, from most of what anyone had seen leading up to the game and for most of the first probably 10 to 20 hours of playing it. Um, 
but slowly, surely, they went from setting that tone of, of fairly straightforward horror to just that level of unease being brought in um, through some of the gore and some of the, the violence, but certainly through um, some of the, the more um, Lovecraftian elements that start coming in. Um, I'm trying to keep this spoiler free, but I think that's fairly safe to say that the, the atmosphere changes as you go throughout the game in what was... Um, a really interesting and exciting way to me that I just didn't see coming and it, it kept me coming back for more I'm still playing it now after the, the DLCs come out which was just this wonderful um, compacted probably six hour uh, event that just strung together five of the uh, best bosses in the game for me and it was um, I just relished the opportunity to go back in and it reminded me how much I enjoyed the game originally and so I've, I've dived back in with a new character and enjoying it every bit as much the last one I want to talk about, um, not necessarily in, in greater detail, but just the one I want to focus on because um, it's not one that I hadn't seen coming, but it's one that I'm, I'm really pleased I enjoyed as much as I did, which is Everybody's Gone to the Rapture. Kind of a, a um, spiritual successor to Dear Esther. Um, from the Chinese room who anyone again who's listened to that podcast will know that I'm a massive massive fan of Dear Esther I know it's got its critics but I, I just adored um, that game's sense of environmental theatre is the term I'm, I'm going to use um, and I, I know walking simulators being used for games like Dear Esther and like everybody's gone to the rapture and in um, quite a negative way um, an environmental theatre or you know whatever you want to call it um, or not a game or whatever, however you want to refer to these um, I, I, just, I just get a lot out of them and I understand the, the complaints that the it's mechanically very light in terms of you're often just walking around not even interacting with anything certainly no combat etc um, but I, I love the change in pace that that gives um, and just the the change in focus, it pushes my focus onto um, looking around at everything, exploring every little uh, part of the game to try and piece together what's happening. Because often, in, in certainly in Everybody's Gone to the Rapture and in Dear Esther, it's about the mystery of what's either what's going on or or where even you are, what the, the place is. Um, and Everybody's Gone to the Rapture did that magnificently to me. Um, you're essentially exploring something that's probably quite familiar to anyone who's um, who, who lives in Britain and knows sort of um, the sort of small rural communi communities you can get there, especially if you've lived there. But um, if you've driven through on a, a you know a sunny summer afternoon at any point, it felt like that that had been trapped, you know, a, a encapsulated a moment in time almost, and you were just exploring this still um, snapshot of of this place in at the very last moment when the last person had had been you know um, moved on as it were again trying to avoid spoilers and I'm certainly not going to go into anything that happened in the story but um, just walking around and trying through these uh, ghostly images and, and um, recordings that had been left trying to uncover the truth about not just what's occurred but the truth about what that um, means for the people that were there because it throughout the whole story um, you're kind of piecing together events and it's not until the very very end that you actually get all the information and um, 
it caused me to not just reflect on the events of the game, but to actually reflect on um, how I was responding to them and, and myself, essentially, which sounds um, very lofty. I'm sorry, I'm talking in rather airy-fairy terms about about it all. Um, but this game, it, it's about as much, for me, it's about um, as, as much what goes on in myself as I'm playing it as what goes on in the screen. And I know that um, Jim Sterling specifically um, criticised everybody's gone to the rapture for being an example of walking simulator that is is very tonally flat in that um, you, you can introduce elements of, of say horror or mystery or you know you can put all those in even in a, a, a game that is essentially mechanic free and he felt that actually throughout everybody's gone to the rapture the the tone of the game just didn't shift at all um, and I appreciate that. It, it doesn't really accept that I, f I felt a change uh, in what I was experiencing as I started asking different questions, got p different pieces of information as the time moves forward and, and back through the lives of these people and start to build a picture of what's gone on. And um, the the tonal changes I felt, as I say, were were, were my response to what I was seeing and me asking you know, what was happening with this particular character in, in a small story that was a side story that was happening. Um, and so they weren't massive swings, but I always felt like I was kept on my toes and always wondering um, as I was walking through the various settings through to the farm and then onto the, the um, train station at the end, as I was asking myself those questions, it changed my state of mind and, and my uh, perception of events. So I very much felt like the, the onus was on me to constantly be thinking about what it all could mean for the overall picture, what every individual character's story, how it all blended together. Um, and so I, I ended up not feeling like there was any problem with the tone at all. Um, that was massively helped by Jessica Curry's music, which once again is, um, is phenomenal, I think, um, in, in terms of setting the scene and um, as, a, as a separately, as a piece of music that forms an album. Um, I love listening to, to that music, even separately from the game. It brings me right back into the setting and the moments uh, I was playing the game and how I felt. And I, I, as, you, as I got to the end of Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, I, I loved the fact that the very last few moments you're brought full circle back to the beginning, which is, uh, you know, that's fairly standard to do, but it not only asked me to question what happened here, it asked me to question the motivations of the two main characters um, and, and which of them was essentially right. And it actually asked me questions about um, what the, the true value, if you like, of, of existence is. And um, almost in a, a Matrix-esque way, if, if you can be trapped in, uh, in an artificial world and um, just presented something that's false but nonetheless nourishes you know your soul if you like um, is that a better existence than the the heartbreak of, of the real world um, and that's again I apologize I'm talking around the subject rather than specifically because that that's saved for a later time if we ever do a cane rinse on the game but um, asking questions like that is a surefire way to have me thinking about a game or a film or whatever it might be for months and I still am um, that game came out during the summer and um, I, I haven't stopped thinking about it 
this whole year and it's a game I keep coming back to and I understand criticisms that people have but when I was playing that I was um, to say I was transported is an understatement. It's probably fair to say that almost every Hotline Miami fan wanted a sequel, but not every Hotline Miami fan liked the sequel that we got. Uh, among the people that I know who were fans of the first game, I'm the only one, seemingly, um, to have walked away actually happy with Hotline Miami 2. Um, from the very opening start menu, Denetton Games lets you know that this is not the sequel you were looking for. its introduction with a hazy, heroin-induced guitar riff among a constantly changing vista made of neon palm trees, and the opening menu in Hotline Miami 2 is almost the entire opposite. Its uh, music and setting are much more serene and relaxing, and looking back, it's clear that this was a setup, uh, maybe a hint that things would be pretty different this time around. Hotline Miami 2 looks and sounds a whole lot like the original game, but in many ways Denton drastically changed the formula in between releases. If Hotline Miami 1 was a hyper-violent, uber-surreal, lynchian nightmare slash murder spree simulator, Hotline Miami 2 is much more of a hyper-violent Terrence Hino crime opera slash murder spree simulator. Where Hotline Miami 1 sped you from one crime scene to the next with maybe one piece of context in between, Hotline Miami 2 has no problems laying into the dialogue and characters are a lot more. There aren't any talking corpses this time around, no alternate timelines or drastic shifts in character perspective, but Hotline Miami 2 is much more interested in telling you a dirty crime drama, interweaving multiple seemingly unrelated stories that naturally by the end wrap together with the events of the first game. And as a big fan of nasty crime dramas, this is probably the main reason why I love Hotline Miami 2 so much. The story and its insane conclusion is one of my favorites in recent memory. But along the way, Denison also made some pretty unpopular gameplay changes, where the floors and its enemy placement were incredibly tightly focused in the first game. Levels in Hotline Miami 2 are huge and sprawling, with enemies constantly roaming, which resulted in many, many unexpected deaths. It's tough, but importantly not impossible, to just breeze through every level without running into death numerous times, and ultimately, that's going to turn off a lot of people. Another massive change that a lot of people aren't going to like is the mask system, which is almost entirely non-existent this time around. There are masks, sure, and you can choose one of up to three to four per level, but gone is the experimental playstyle of running through each level with a different mask to see what kind of high score you can get. Fortunately for me, I enjoyed how the game kind of forced me to change my playstyle. I ended up finding ways to combo using guns that I wouldn't have thought of had my playstyle remained the same from the first game. By the time I reached the end of Hotline Miami 2, my respect for Denison grew tenfold. They knew the sequel that we wanted. We all wanted the same, just again. But they absolutely subverted all expectations, giving us something completely unexpected, but still, at least in my opinion, incredibly fun. And yeah, obviously the soundtrack is great too, but you knew that already. 
Hello everybody, it's Darren Gargett here. Uh, I'm here to talk to you about one of my favourite games of the year. Actually, it was kind of like, you know, a bunch of games all under one roof. Like that famous toy shop that does the song. Before we get to that, 2015 was <laughs> surprisingly impressive for games. I don't think we've, we realised, you know... Until like later on, the, you know, around about August time that we realised that the 2015 was absolutely spectacular for games. Um, and, you know, it doesn't matter what format you're playing on, PC, PlayStation 4, whatever, you know, you, um, you were going to have a good time with at least one video game. Which is something that I've been trying to do in 2015, is to kind of scale down how many games I'm playing and enjoy the games that I've got at the time. So for example, Halo 5. But I think I enjoyed it more when I decided to not carry it and not move on to the next one, which is what we seem, I say we, which is what a lot of us seem to be doing in games. It's like we're so excited for the next one, which is good, but I think we also should be savouring the games we've got at the moment. And that's kind of my philosophy at the moment, is just to just immerse myself in the game I've got and crack on with it. So Halo 5 I finished on normal. And then I, and then I played it again on Legendary at Solo and really enjoyed it. So when I picked up Rise of the Tomb Raider, I decided to have the same kind of philosophy again. And not just get to the end and, you know, trade it in, but get to the end 100%. Like, like, like the, you know, like the, the uh, kind of one of the foundations of Kane and Rinse is to Kane and Rinse video games, and I want to kind of get back to that. I felt like I was in the rat race for a long time, and, oh, this is out, and that is out, and that is out. I must get to it straight away, but I've trained myself not to buy the game straight away. Doesn't matter what game it is, but just wait on it. And to be honest, you probably have a better experience due to day one games being a bit rubbish lately. Um, Batman Arkham Knight was a prime example on PC. On it's still not even fixed now. On how games are quite largely broken on day one and get fixed over time, and ultimately you'll have a better experience at the end of it all. In about June, E3's around June, isn't it? My ex-wife, my ex-podcast wife, James Perkins, we we did a podcast together. And he comes down, we, we, you know, it is like a divorced couple, because he comes down once a year, maybe twice a year if he's lucky, to see the children, our, you know, our old podcast, when we have a little chat about it and have a good time. But he's always down for E3. And, you know, we discuss what we'd like to see. We, we don't really do it on a podcast. We, we did, but no one really listened to it. Um, we just did it for us, which is how you should do everything, really. You should do it for yourself. Um, anyway, and we were discussing what we'd like to see at E3. Now, I flippantly, you know, plucked out one of the the reoccurring dreams of mine was to see, uh, you know, classic games on modern consoles from a certain company called Rare, maybe. And, uh, you know, I, I'd said, and you put, you'll hear it in a clip if I can find it, um, that I wanted Blast Core HD or a collection of Rare games all under one roof. It's called Rare Are Us. Something like that. Gonna go for Blast Corps HD. In fact, they're gonna get their whole N64 library from the N64. They're gonna give it to Backbone, whoever they, whoever made the Banjo Kazooie ports and Perfect Dark ports for 4J or Backbone, and they're gonna get every single one. So, got, no, not Goldeneye, but Perfect Dark's already on there. They're gonna port that over to Xbox One. They're gonna get 
Diddy Kong Racing, they can't because of the license, so let's forget that. Um, Banjo Kazooie, they can't. Oh, no, yeah, they're going to. Banjo that's already on there, so they're going to port that to Xbox One as well. And they're going to have Conker's Bad Fur Day, they're going to do that onto Xbox One. Jeffrey Gemini, it's all the rare library from the N64 days, and maybe before that. So, mm-hmm. like, um, just everything. The, the, the legacy collection of rare and slash ultimate play the game. It's going to do a big f***ing bundle of it. Just 40 quid for like... Just, just, yeah, just 40 quid. Just buy it. It's a whole pack. It's everything rare I've ever done before the acquisition. Maybe, maybe they're uh, grabbed by the ghoulies. Just just a big bundle of fun because everyone's dying out for rare games to the point where they'd rather just play the old stuff in HD again. <laughs> so if you put Blast Core, Jet Force Gemini and all that, you know, Mickey's... Probably not Mickey's Speedway. You can't do that because of the license. But, you know, those legacy games, probably not Star Fox Adventures, but you couldn't because it's Star Fox. Or maybe, yeah... I don't know, something like that. That's just either a prediction or a dream. Like, a, a, a dream. Project dream. Like, Banjo-Kazoo before it was Banjo-Kazoo. And lo and behold, at E3, uh, that very thing happened with Rare Replay. And I just... It was unbelievable. It was... It was... Remember the last E3, two E3s ago, when that Conquer reveal happened, but it ended up being Project Spark, which actually is one of the lowlights of the year for me. Um, this was like that, but it kind of carried on being exciting as opposed to just a little cameo minigame and not cameo, the elements of power. I mean, a cameo is in a starring role in another game. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, Rare Replays, 30 hit games in one epic collection, as the front says, and it's all shiny and lovely. And it features games from Rare, you know, Xbox 360, uh, Xbox with Ghoulies, and then there's the N64 stuff, obviously, Jet Force Gemini, which you know I absolutely caned and rinsed during my in-between jobs in August. And I, honestly, I, I couldn't wish, I couldn't have hoped for a better expan- yeah, um, expansion, a collection of games. Uh, you know, there are omissions, obviously, but you can't get all pissy. You can't get all moody about um, missing games for licensing reasons. And, you know, the industry bigwigs want the bigger piece of the pie for GoldenEye rights. But at the end of the day, you've got Perfect Dark on there, and they play very similarly in terms of the core structure. Uh, so, you know, and I think Perfect Dark's a better game. Perfect Dark Zero, on the other hand, I mean, oof. So, you know, I've played through a lot of these games on the uh, Xbox One. I, you know, I destroyed Jeff Force Gemini, which I was quite cautious about because of the tribals. But it turns out it's not as bad as what we remember it being. I think over time it got a lot worse. But actually going back through the world um, and collecting all the tribal bears, it wasn't much of a chore as what I was expecting, which is nice. Um, they got rid of the Jimmy Savile reference at the end, which, you know, surprise, surprise. Um, you know, and, and then I moved on to Blast Core again, which I, I completely crushed. And it, I got to the point where it was the Platinum Challenges and... It kind of echoes what I was saying earlier in like you know, maximising the amount of your game, but also I need to know my limits and realise that I'm never going to get all the platinums. So I did get you know past planet Earth and onto the other planets. Spoiler. Again, like you know, reinforcing that motto of mine of just like get the most out of your game at the moment. And rare replay. Yeah, talking about getting the most out of your game. There are there are loads of challenges in there. There's like hidden features and bonuses and all sorts in there. It is an amazing collection, and it was twenty quid over it. And I was in Tesco's, or I was in another supermarket of no brand name, and it was eleven quid. Eleven quid. Like you get like 
some really good NES games. I mean, not, not all of them are great. And some uh, Spectrum games, which are really hard work. But for 11 quid, like, you can... I, I don't understand why people aren't talking about it more. It's like they've just forgotten about its existence in 2015, in the, in the year of great games. It's like, yeah, Bloodborne was really good. Fallout was good. Uh, Witcher was the best. And no one seems to mention Rare Replay. And I, I, Did the Orange Box get the same treatment? I don't know. But it's a shame that a collection of classics, like legitimate classics, is just being sort of ignored by a lot of what I've seen Game of the Year lists. And for me, I mean, it is, you know, it is 30 games in one. But it's, as a game, as a thing that I can hold and go, oh yeah, wicked. It was my favourite thing this year. And not many companies would do that. Like, who else is going to put 30, 30, 30 games in a box? Okay, there you go. Have it for 20 quid. You're like, what's the catch? Is it full of DLC, like microtransactions? Is it is a piece of genius art and yeah hopefully it paves the way for you know the the way rare used to be you know creating brave and interesting uh, characters and worlds which hopefully sea of thieves sea of thieves delivers it looks really good and you know over the last kind ever since rare replays been released and we've seen on their youtube channel videos of project dream for example and they are spilling the beans and they're kind of they're pulling us back in by showing us behind the curtain and it's working really well and they're kind of gaining our trust again I know that sounds really like weird to say like oh we now trust a major corporation but it's like you know the rare that you once knew they're, they're still there and they're, 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 they're different now they've come out the other side and you know they've changed you can now see inside the building whenever you want you can you know just press on a button and go inside the rare HQ it's, it's crazy rare replay is an absolute gem Ryan Heyman. 2015 has been a tremendous year for video gaming. It's been full of innovation and exploration in some very exciting directions. When settling upon one or two games that I wanted to highlight in particular as standout examples of some of the best that 2015 had to offer, I realized that so many of the standout titles that came out this year just completely redefined their respective genres and gave us experiences qualitatively and not just iteratively different than anything else we've ever had before. Before I get to the top of my list, I wanted to highlight some of the moments in 2015 that stood out in particular. In 2013, Gone Home gave us a freely explorable narrative that held to a surprisingly coherent linearity despite the feeling of complete freedom and spontaneity by employing a cleverly hidden invisible hand. Further expanding upon this obfuscation of the guiding narrative force is this year's genre creating her story. Splatoon revolutionized everything, as the year's most intriguing multiplayer shooter could be defined as being entirely non-violent. Rare Replay delivered an absurd value for money and set a very high precedent for presentation in a compilation collections. Rocket League boiled down the very core aspects of football into a surprisingly enjoyable and approachable package. Grow Home gave Traversal a more tactile feel than ever before, and made climbing the most fun it's ever been in a video game. Shadow of the Colossus developers take note. 
Super Mario Maker, though more creatively limiting than Little Big Planet, capitalizes upon the refined Mario formula that Nintendo has been perfecting for the last 30 years and puts a surprisingly accessible set of creation tools into the hands of gamers. I'm certain that it'll be monumental in the life stories of the next generation of great game designers. Batman Arkham Knight hit its plot twist to a surprising degree. For as fundamental to the game as it was, it was really cool to see how on-board reviewers, press, and fans were to not spoil it for the uninitiated. Good on all of you. Life is Strange, specifically episodes 2 and 3, and not the rather uninspiring 1, 4, and 5, shocked players with the immediate gravity of their choices, and not in the you'll-see-in-three-episodes-time model that Telltale likes to use. Some amazing moments unfortunately marred by an unfortunate last two episodes. Ori in the Blind Forest found a way to turn saving into a game mechanic. Based on what we've seen so far, this mechanic might be further iterated upon in 2016's Dark Souls 3. The Beginner's Guide dropped an enormous bomb on players in its final moments, though instead of being a narrative twist, this played with feelings of real-life ethical ambiguity. The conversation surrounding the Beginner's Guide online has been reminiscent of the kind of conversations surrounding some of the most profound revolutionary literature in decades past. All of this is to say that 2015 has been a great gaming year for me, and there are dozens of other great games that I haven't even had the chance to try yet, like Hand of Fate, the Five Nights at Freddy's series, Helldivers, City Skylines, Tokuden Kiwami, Mortal Kombat X, Titan Souls, Stretchmo, Lego Dimensions, Disney Infinity 3.0, Tembo the Badass Elephant, N++, Galaxy, Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, Stein's Gate, Metal Gear Solid 5, Tearaway Unfolded, Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time, Rise of the Tomb Raider, Just Cause 3, Dragon Quest Heroes, Yoshi's Woolly World, Downwell, Mad Max, Volume, Axiom Verge, Until Dawn, and so many more. <laughs> Having played so many great games this year, it seems almost unfair to highlight this one game in particular, since my affection for it doesn't stem from its innovation per se. Rather, it's a coldly calculated summation of all of my favorite things jam-packed into one game. A Souls sequel that riffs on the tropes of gothic horror? Yes, please. Bloodborne sanded off many of the rough edges of the revolutionary Dark Souls design, delivering a refined, fast-paced, brutal experience that balances its elements perfectly. The game looks beautiful, guiding players through a surprising variety of well-realized and beautifully rendered areas, spanning all corners of horror literature, from the grimy London streets of werewolf stories, to the frozen, desolate, haunted castles of vampire lore, to the cosmic horror of H.P. Lovecraft to the laboratory-set horror of Man Gone Too Far, of Frankenstein, to even a haunted pirate town. As impressive as how right the game got its horror atmosphere, even more impressive was the amount of content that it delivered. I'm so used to games being quite short or reusing assets in obvious ways. This year's The Order 1886 comes to mind in particular. And most of the time this is actually appreciated. I don't have a lot of time for 80-hour epics any longer. Bloodborne, though, I never wanted to end, and it lasted far longer than I expected it to, bolstered even more by its chalice dungeons and excellent DLC. If there has ever been a game made specifically and unapologetically for me and my interests, it's Bloodborne. For anything to dethrone Bloodborne in my mind was almost unthinkable, but almost out of nowhere came an experience so innovative, heartfelt, and surprisingly complex 
that I have to label it as the most important game of 2015. Honestly, I almost feel like I have to apologize for this one. When I first played the Undertale demo that designer Toby Fox put out months before the game's release, I knew it was special, and I was excited to share it with all of you on the year-end list, perhaps recommending something obscure and overlooked. In the months since, though, it's been anything but, and unfortunately the fan base has grown to be rather annoying and insufferable. But despite its fans, and despite the drama over at GameFAQs, just ignore all that and let's just take the game on its own merits. Undertale is a comedic RPG set in an underground world of monsters. You play as an androgynous child who fell down a pit and awoke in a world that fears and in some cases detests him. This is because humans and monsters have been at war, and humans have all but wiped the monsters out, forcing them to hide underground. What you begin to find, though, is that the monsters are just misunderstood. They're sweet and eccentric folks just wanting to be understood, just wanting to be loved. Undertale pioneered an innovative new battle system. The encounter mechanics turn combat into a really fun dodge-em-up minigame that uses bullet spread patterns to teach players more about the characters that they're fighting against. Even more innovative, though, are the game's pacifist options. Each combat encounter can be resolved by talking and understanding your opponent. These often make for some of the most rewarding encounters in the game, and the extremely funny writing makes each encounter memorable and rewarding. Somehow, even more impressive than all of this is the brilliant metagame narrative delivery, leveraging its save-load system in a surprising way, and giving choices an unsettling amount of permanence and finality, which I've written about in more detail on canonrinse.com, so I won't reiterate all of that here. But go check out that article. Undertale is bolstered by a catchy soundtrack, some of the best writing and characters that I've ever experienced in video games, and the ability to date a skeleton named after the font of his speech text. It's silly, it's heartwarming, it's loving, it's challenging, it's deep, it's everything I want from a video game, and it's, in my opinion, the most important video game of 2015. And that's it. Thank you for spending your 2015 with us at Kane and Rinse. It's been an honor for all of us on the podcast to be able to share our excitement and curiosity with all of you, our amazing community. You continue to inspire us daily, showing us experiments in the interactive arts that we would have otherwise completely missed, and illuminating perspectives that would have otherwise gone overlooked. I speak for the whole team when I say that we look forward to spending our 2016 with all of you, learning and loving more about video games. If 2016 is half as special as 2015 was, then we have an exciting year ahead of us, indeed. From the bottom of our heart containers, thank you for your continued support and brilliance. As a bonus on the end of this year's show, I wanted to give you something special. This is a remix, an audio soundscape of sorts, that represents some of the best moments of 2015 in video games. I'm certainly no master remixer as much as I would like to be, so the mix is rather primitive and rudimentary in its implementation, but I hope that it'll bring back some of the memories of 2015's best music and best moments in games. Have a happy new year, and thank you for a marvelous 2015. Nothing. This is your only warning. We're going to look at the games made by a friend of mine named Coda. Hey, hey, glad you came back for another night. Every single choice will affect your fate and the fate of those around Hear me, Uriel. The end of days is upon us. My name's Manny Calavera. I'm your new travel agent. 
Okay. We will. Forever. Funny story, I forgot how much of a big fat mess you are. I've been busy doing science. It's been tons of fun so far.